0: welcome back. I'm opening the podcast right off with a huge waving red neon trigger warning because while this podcast talks about heavy topics almost every single episode, this episode in particular is not something you want to listen to unless you're in a really stable place in your mental health journey. Mainly because this episode we talk all about suicidal ideation, thoughts of suicide, involuntary commitments in mental health hospitals, and the underfunded and overwhelmed mental health system in the United States. We don't go into any graphic descriptions or depictions of suicide or self-harm at all in the episode, but the topic itself is too heavy for some people, and that's okay. My guest on today's episode is Catherine, a licensed clinical social worker whose work specializes in individuals with BPD, complex trauma, and addiction. Prior to her private practice, Katherine worked in emergency rooms for five years where she encountered drug and risk assessments, involuntary commitments, and struggles navigating the health insurance system in the United States. On this episode of the podcast, Catherine and I talk about the acute care model, what that is and how our mental health systems in the United States are not set up to adequately support people with BPD who experience chronic suicidality. Catherine also walks us through step-by-step exactly what it's like when someone ends up in the emergency room or hospital after suicide attempt or ideation on both the part of the patient as well as the providers. While Catherine points out areas for improvement, what I love about our conversation is that it focuses on the human aspect of what's going on in our mental health systems in the United States. In these systems are providers that are often doing the best they can while being burned out and frustrated and feeling like their hands are tied. And Sometimes there are people that fail at their jobs. On the other side of this coin, we have individuals who are seeking help from these services. Many of these people have BPD or other personality disorders with chronic suicidal ideation that these systems were just not set up in a way that can help them in the best way they need. I'll admit it, it's a bit of a mess, and I think we can all agree. But I can promise you one thing, this episode will leave you more informed and I think this episode in particular will be very helpful for friends and family of people with BPD who aren't quite sure what to do or how best to help in situations where the person you love may be wondering if it's really worth it to do this life thing. Knowledge is power. If we better understand the systems that we are seeking help from, we are more empowered to understand how to best advocate for ourselves as people with BPD and complex trauma. This episode will also help friends and family members better advocate for the people that they love. Not only do we empower you with more knowledge and understanding of the systems that you may be seeking help from, Catherine and I also provide some of our own lived experience and struggles with suicidal ideation and how we've moved through those feelings and how these feelings are a lot more common in the people around you than you may expect. You are not alone. So if you've listened this far and you feel like you're in a stable enough place to handle some difficult subject matter, but with a message of hope weaved in, then keep listening because I really think you will enjoy and take so much from my conversation with Catherine. So without further ado, let's jump in to today's episode and don't forget, take very good care of yourselves, my friends. Let's do it.
1: all this focus, focus is supposed to be. Scientific, scientific,
0: scientific, scientific, scientific you have entered back from the borderline where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed I'm your host Molly <laughs> I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, We'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, we'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I will let my guest go ahead and introduce herself and then we'll dive into today's episode. My name is
2: Katherine Heumannack, and I am a licensed clinical social worker in Texas, Colorado, and I also practice telehealth in Florida. I mostly specialize in borderline
0: personality disorder, complex trauma, and addiction. Awesome. And Catherine, I actually found you on Instagram, and you have a really great Instagram account all about BPD. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to start posting um, particularly about BPD?
2: Sure, and thank you for the compliment. I think your Instagram is also amazing. Um So I was inspired to post about BPD because there is already a lot of information out there about addiction. There's already a lot of information out there about complex trauma, even though it's newer, you know, we talk about it a lot more. It's a lot more public. And there really isn't so much information out there about BPD that is empowering. Um, There's a lot of information out there that's really stigmatizing. There's a lot of information out there by people who have had negative experiences, who are giving voice to those experiences. Um, But there really isn't a lot of more up-to-date research-based information about the positive outcomes that we do see and the way that treatment can work and can help people.
0: So I wanted to share that. And for the listeners, I will Hyperlink to Catherine's Instagram in the show notes so that you can go check her out there. But when you and I were discussing having you on the podcast and you said that you had like an epiphany of like a wave of inspiration of what you wanted to potentially talk about today, <laughs> can you walk me through like what prompted that wave of inspiration?
2: Sure. So um I worked for five years in emergency rooms doing crisis assessments and we'll talk about what a crisis means you know in terms of the actual definition in the in the mental health system Um, but it was something that i realized is so important to your listeners to people with bpd in general because so many people with bpd deal with thoughts of suicide all the time And there's so much research out there that they won't talk about it with their therapist because they're afraid of getting, quote unquote, locked up. And so I really wanted to give whatever information I could to kind of shed light on how that system does work. Um, It's not going to be all good. I, I do have some things I'm pretty critical of the system about, but I think that people should have that information so that they can make good choices because if you're hiding something as serious as suicidal ideation from your therapist, your healing is incomplete, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. you can't do some really, really important, really necessary work. So my hope is that by talking about the involuntary mental health commitment process um, in the United States, in the States in which I have been licensed, and we'll talk about why those disclaimers are so important. Mm -hmm. Um, But my, my big hope is that people will feel more comfortable talking with their therapist, more comfortable seeking help, more empowered to seek the right kind of help for them um, so that they can get what they need.
0: I think it's a really important topic too. I talked to Courtney, the truth doctor, right? um, On my podcast. And we talked a little bit about how she, thinks that existential thoughts and suicidal thoughts are things that need to be actively discussed in therapy. And she says that she works really hard to develop a sense of trust with her patients because she doesn't want them to think that if they just even mention thoughts of not wanting to be alive or something that she's going to basically Mm -hmm. phone it in and potentially get them, you know, committed to save herself the liability. Can you talk a little bit about that? What would happen if someone talks about wanting to end their life in therapy?
2: That is a great question. And there are so many different answers. Mm -hmm. Um, The first thing that I want to say before I say anything else about kind of the the step-by-step process of the system Mm -hmm. is that every state in the United States has a different law about when and how to hospitalize somebody on an involuntary basis. Um, When I say involuntary, what I mean is that the person does not want to be hospitalized and we initiate a legal process to put them in the hospital anyway, hopefully for their own safety. Although you did mention, and it is true. And I do want to acknowledge that there are clinicians out there who, whether it's a lack of comfort, a lack of skill, lack of practice, whatever it may be they may worry about liability and and they may just think that this is the safest thing for the for their patient and for themselves mm-hmm. um, so all 50 states have different laws they fall under pretty similar categories but the actual step-by-step process could look very different depending on where you live and actually one of the states where i worked which is texas the step-by-step process is different in every county
0: Wow. And there are, I
2: believe, 254 counties in Texas.
0: I can absolutely relate and understand to therapists why they would want to just say something because God forbid you didn't. And then something happens to someone. So it's like, I just want to put out there that I think everyone, this podcast is all about empathy. It's like the people that are going through these, these difficult feelings of suicidal ideation I can have so much empathy and then I also have so much empathy for the people that are on the therapist couch too. So it's just like, I think that our goal in this podcast episode is to give people all of the information so that they're more informed. I think what you and I want to shed light on is A, information and B, like red tape and how maybe the system is not set up in a way that's in the therapist's best interest or the patient's best interest. So- yeah, absolutely. And and
2: no, I, I'm glad that you point that out because there is, this isn't client versus therapist. And how do you like win the battle of wits about how mm-hmm. to talk about your suicidal thoughts without going yes. to the hospital? It, it should never be that way. But also we have to acknowledge the way that the system is set up and mm-hmm. the constraints on both parties in that system or else we're just not having a realistic discussion. So, when you say something like cover your ass, you are not wrong. Um, you're not. But there um there doesn't necessarily have to be a moral judgment behind that either. Exactly. Right. This is somebody who is wanting to be able to continue to stay in practice and to continue to help people. And what what we what we know, actually, what we don't know is that we do not have good tools for predicting who is going to end their life by suicide and who is just thinking about it and just talking about it. We, we have a lot of tools that have been invented. And what we know is that they're not very reliable. And mm-hmm. all of them, even the best ones that we have, they catch a huge number of false positives in this kind of better safe than sorry. So, um, you know, you might catch almost all of the people who are planning to go on and take action to end their life. You might catch all of them or 99% of them, but you're also going to catch lots and lots and lots of people who were not going to do that. Um, So even using the best tools we have, even using the research-based tools that we have, implementing everything that we can to try and make sure that we're making these accurate predictions, at the end of the day, we are looking into the future and trying to tell the future. Mm -hmm. And so that is just not something that can be that can be done. The the only way to create a system that is going to catch all of the people or the vast majority of the people who are going to take action is to catch some people who were close to that threshold, but not. And that is a horrible experience, can be a horrible experience for the people who were not intending to take any action and I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, but I also want to point out that we have to build a system somehow, and it can't be perfect. So the system as a whole has erred on the side of caution.
0: In preparation for um, our interview, you know, I do what I always do, which is like I look on Reddit, like Reddit to me is just like, it can be so toxic, but then also it can be like a really good treasure trove of information Mm -hmm. and experiences. I read an overwhelming amount of Reddit posts where people were talking about their horrific experiences of particularly going into like an emergency room after like a suicide attempt or suicidal ideation. Um, But someone wrote something that struck me. And this person writes, I will never go into an emergency room willingly again. The system is the same system built and designed in the seventies and eighties after deinstitutionalization. This is the same system that designed anti-suicide measures and the acute care model. They assumed back then that the average suicidal person was just a quote, normal person going through a quote, rough patch. The idea was to keep them safe, give them a few months of therapy and assume they'd get better. We know now that this doesn't work. 90% of suicidal people are not acute. They are chronic. What it comes down to is that our government does not want to spend the money on what actually works for chronic suicidality, which is partial inpatient access to individual therapy groups, dedicated phone lines. All of it costs a lot more than the current system does. It comes down to public the public not knowing that this is Apologies. It comes down to the public not knowing that this more effective model exists, not being willing to spend the money to implement it, just not pushing for it, a combination of all three. I've noticed a lethargy of defeat has clearly sunk into the normal anti-suicide measures at this point. Normal three-day psych holds and crisis lines. That's it. Just patch over by throwing a tiny bit of money and help at it, but nothing that can actually make a meaningful difference. The system was never designed with what suicidality actually looks like in the majority of cases. The people I've experienced working within most branches of the system at this point are jaded, burnt out, and hardened. The system is fundamentally and deeply broken. I've seen an enormous good with therapy, but I don't care how bad it gets. I will never create the possibility that I'm ever admitted to a hospital again. This was a recurring type of sentiment that I saw. Mm -hmm. What's your reaction to that?
2: I think there is a lot of truth in it. You know, unfortunately, the way the system is built, there are a lot of folks who work in crisis care because that is their passion And there are a lot of folks who work in crisis care because there's always jobs because it's a very stressful job. And there is really high burnout. And that means there's really high turnover. Um, I think that's honestly, that's going to be true in pretty much any kind of mental health unless somebody is in their own private practice. Um, There's any kind of agency work. There are always people that are there because they are new grads. They're trying to get licensed. They're trying to find their passion. They're not sure this is their passion. There's always people in agencies who are not a good fit. Again, not defending it, just kind of illustrating what the system is. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth to what that person said, but when, when you sent me that passage, the number one thing that popped out at me and the number one thing hearing you read it again is the involuntary commitment system is not designed for people with BPD who have chronic suicidal thoughts. Mm. That's not what it's for. So of course it doesn't serve them very well um, because it's not for them. When you look at the way that, and again, 50 different states, right? When you look at the way that the laws are written, they're overwhelmingly written as imminent danger to self, imminent danger to others, or depending on the state, you may have a third criteria, which is called grave disability. You do not have to be suicidal to be dangerous to yourself. If you are experiencing a psychotic episode and you can't differentiate reality from your hallucinations, Depending on the content of your hallucinations, you could be very dangerous to yourself. The police may find you walking on the freeway. That that is your mental illness causing you to be a danger to yourself.
0: Mm -hmm. Right?
2: It doesn't say that the person has to be suicidal to meet that criteria because the law was built for anybody whose mental illness is creating a danger of physical harm. And in the system that we have that often gets applied to people with BPD who have chronic suicidality or CPTSD or or any mental illness where you have chronic suicidality. But that's, it was never designed for chronic. It was always designed for people who were having a really serious episode so that we could protect their physical safety until that moment had passed. Mm -hmm. I've never met anybody who works in inpatient who thinks that inpatient psychiatric care is where people do the most of their therapeutic work. Um it's it's not meant to be. It's meant to it's meant to ensure your physical safety so that when right. you're ready you can go do that hard work out in the world.
0: Well, I mean, if the goal of right psychiatric treatment at a really high level is like individuation, right? It's basically to regain your own um sense of self-control and all these things. It's like, you can't do any of that work unless you're like at some type of like a baseline stability.
2: Depending on where you are, and that is such a terrible state of affairs, right? But it's true. Depending on where you are, you could get funneled into that outpatient care that you need, but it depends on location. It depends on The way that you arrived to the emergency room, it depends literally on the attitude of the police officer who may have responded to the 911 call. It depends on so many factors. And it also depends how your state funds mental health. So I worked in Colorado and I worked in Texas. For those of you who are not uh, from the US, one of those states is really prides itself on being progressive and has a lot of funding for mental health care. The other state is historically a very conservative state. And it's also has tens of millions more people. And so it's covering a much bigger geographical area and they can't, logistically, they cannot provide the same kind of wraparound care. If you live 300 miles from the nearest hospital, sorry, there is no IOP for you, right? Like if if you're out in the middle of nowhere in Texas, so it's going to group therapy, maybe also individual therapy, maybe also med management multiple times a week.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But theoretically you're still able to attend school or work and you sleep in your own bed. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have to take a break from school or work, but you are living in the community and attending treatment on a voluntary basis. Got it. Um, so when yeah. So when I lived in Colorado and I worked in the ER. I worked for a community mental health agency, and the goal was actually to send as many people as you could home. We didn't want to keep you in the hospital um, because I could, I could schedule somebody for a psychiatry appointment tomorrow. So if they came to the ER because they needed a med refill, which is the unfortunate state of American healthcare. If they come to the ER because they need a med refill, the ER doctor is probably not going to do that because that is not their competence And they didn't have to go to the hospital to get that. I could set them up an appointment tomorrow.
0: This post that we were reading was kind of just saying like, our system is not set up to understand or support people with chronic suicidality. So what does that look like? And how is our current system failing in that regard? Sure. So
2: to answer that, I want to give a very brief step-by-step of how getting into the psych hospital works. So there are kind of two ways for it to get started. You may choose to go to the emergency room on your own. Like you may say, I can't keep myself safe. I don't know what to do. I'm going to the ER. Or you or somebody may call 911 on your behalf. And those are really the two ways that people get started. There is, I want, I want to make sure as we round up, I do want to talk about other options there are for getting the help you need. But in terms of how people end up in the hospital, it usually starts with one of those two things. Mm -hmm. If somebody calls 911 on your behalf, depending on where you live, um, you are probably just going to get a law enforcement officer who has their department standard of mental health training. So in Texas, that's about 40 hours.
0: 40 hours.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. With that being said, there are in most, I think, major metropolitan areas now, they do have mental health crisis teams where it's a social worker and a law enforcement officer with a lot more training who are going to respond to that call. The hours of that team, the geographic the geographic response area of that team is going to really depend on, on your city, mm-hmm. um, but if you're outside of, of a major city, you are probably getting a, a standard patrol officer who some of them are so wonderful and so compassionate and really kind. And some of them did not sign up to be cops, to be mental health providers. Of course. Uh, And the really unfortunate truth of our situation in America is that police officers provide, if you look at just number of meetings, police mm-hmm. officers provide, I believe the most mental health care
0: in America. I don't uh, post the video of these episodes, so I just want everyone to imagine me staring into the screen, blinking very uh, surprisedly. It just goes to show how broken our system is and how in desperate need we are for people, like specifically trained crisis teams that can come in and help people in these situations you painting this picture and then also saying like the amount of people that are going in to get med refills to the ER. It's just like, it's such a a dire state of affairs, the way that we handle mental health in, I mean, around the world. But again, you and I can only speak for the country that we're in now.
2: Absolutely. And that, that police officer who takes you to the hospital, that interaction can really color your entire experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you do have an officer who is compassionate, who is explaining to you the step-by-step process of what you're about to walk into, you know, you're going to go to the ER, they're going to take some blood work, they're going to ask you some questions about how you're doing, they're going to decide whether you need to stay a little bit longer. Um, When people are kind of briefed like that, they know at least what is happening um, when they get there. And then it can be at least you are in the driver's seat. You may not like your destination, but you're in the driver's seat to get there. You're not like in the back seat wondering what's going on. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes I have worked with patients who they get to the ER and they said, well, the cop told me that uh, I had to come here so I wouldn't catch a charge. Or the cop told me that I had to come here and then you would send me home. Uh, and that can be I'm frustrated as a, as a provider, but I'm really frustrated on behalf of that patient who doesn't understand what is happening to them, um, and now has to be reoriented to the system when they're halfway through this process that is really really, um, and we'll definitely talk about it a little bit more, but the process is, potentially very traumatizing just to be hospitalized, even if you want to be hospitalized. So when it gets kind of sprung upon people as a surprise, it does just another layer of
0: damage. What is the process like and what are those potentially traumatizing points in your view?
2: Once you arrive at the hospital, you see a doctor, you get labs. The purpose of that visit is to make sure that you don't have a physical condition that is causing the mental health behavior. Mm-hmm. Right, so if you were having a stroke, you might look like you're really drunk. So we're going to test your blood alcohol to see: Are you drunk? Or are you having a medical emergency? Mm-hmm. Um, or somebody may need medical attention because they have taken action to end their life, or they have self harm to the point where they need medical attention. They're going to see the doctor for that first before they see the mental health person. Sure. Let me just. Once that the, yeah, once they're medically stable which could be 20 minutes, it could be a couple days, you know, Mm -hmm. it it really depends on, on what has happened to get them into the hospital. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to talk to a mental health professional whose job is to basically decide, do I think that this person will die if they leave the hospital? Or do I think that this person will potentially cause the death of somebody else if they leave the hospital? And that's what I was saying about the beginning at, at, We don't have crystal balls. We have tools, (laughs) but the the tools are good at catching people who are going to take action, but they catch a lot of other people as well. And we have, as a system, decided that it is better to be safe than sorry.
0: What are these tools? There is the Columbia screening. What types of questions does it ask?
2: The Columbia suicide screening, that is... Basically an assessor of how, how much danger somebody is in at the present moment. Mm -hmm. So the first two questions that they ask you are, have you wished you were dead or wish you could go to sleep and not wake up? And if somebody answers yes to that, then you go to, have you actually had any thoughts of killing yourself? And if somebody says that, then, then you go through some additional questions The problem is a lot of folks who have that chronic suicidal thought, Mm -hmm. of course they know how they're going to kill themselves. It doesn't mean they have any intent to do it today,
0: Exactly. But,
2: but they've been thinking about it for years. That's just, that's what their brain does as kind of a, a defense mechanism. I was
0: about to say, I've heard it described as that too, right? Where it's like, it's not like they have any actual plans, but knowing that it's there in their back pocket is like a coping mechanism for them.
2: Yep. Yep, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And so this screening is going to catch everybody who has chronic thoughts. Lots and lots and lots of people with BPD are going to get flagged under this screening, even if Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily in any danger. Now, we do other things. We don't just go in with a Columbia and then leave. Um, The assessment can take anywhere from half an hour Um, if somebody is not wanting to talk to us, we can't make them. We have to make a decision based on the information we got from the police officer, the family, the doctor about how they've been behaving since they got there. Um, which may or may not be really, really reflective of somebody's actual mental state. Mm -hmm. Um, if they're willing to talk to us, I mean, that, that assessment can go for an hour or two, Mm um, so the goal is to get as much information as we need to keep people safe. And when I was in Colorado, because we had so many levels of care that we could refer to, I think I, I think I had seven different levels of care that I could send somebody to after their hospital visit. Really, the focus was keeping people out of the hospital. We don't actually want them to be in the hospital if they don't need to be. We want them to go to a unit that's not locked. We right. want them to go to a day program. We want them to go to an after-school program. We want them to go get a med appointment. Goes they we, they need case management in other systems where we don't have that wraparound model isn't available or something something as goofy as you're in the wrong county when you have your crisis, mm-hmm. so you can't get funneled. Like maybe you live in Houston where the Harris Center has really really really. Um, Comprehensive wraparound of care, but if you have your crisis in Galveston because you're at the beach that day, you're not going to get funneled into the Harris system. Wow. You'll get a referral and, and you'll go and get on that wait list, but you won't be able to get that that like emergency flowchart kind of mm-hmm. immediate next day care. There's so much, unfortunately, that depends on where you are, and so I want to pause here and say. Mm. That for those of you who are listening and are horrified, your county, if you live in the United States, probably has a mental health crisis line Mm -hmm. that is run by the county mental health agency. So I strongly encourage you to know that number. And if this is something that you deal with, to have your family and friends who you talk about your suicidal thoughts with for them to have that number, because if you do end up needing emergency care. You do mm-hmm. want to go through your local resource. You don't want to just end up at whatever the nearest place or wherever, you know, wherever emergency services brings you. You do want to have a little bit uh, more control over how you enter into this crisis system
0: this could be a really tough topic for people but and i'm obviously going to put like the biggest trigger warning at the beginning of this episode that's ever existed because you know this topic can be really tough for people to hear but i also think that some of the toughest topics are things that we just have to talk about listening to this episode and absorbing this information my hope is that people family members friends um they will have this information in the back of their mind. And so one day when it, when your instincts need to kick in, you can remember this and say, okay, I know that I need to do X, Y, and Z, or I know that if I'm in this position, you, if you find yourself in the back of a cop car um, after a mental health crisis, it's like, you can have a better understanding of the cop that's driving the car and what his or her job is and what the people at the emergency room are looking like, like, I say it once and I say it a thousand times, like knowledge is power. When you have an understanding of why the cop is doing what the cop is doing, what their like desired outcome is and their goal is, right? Like at the end of the day, regardless of how overwhelmed the systems are, the reality is the reality. People are trying to do their jobs and everyone is overwhelmed in their own way. But if you can have an understanding of where these people's minds are at and what they're trying to accomplish you are much better positioned as a person who's struggling with mental illness to have that knowledge. With this knowledge though, you at least have a little bit more, more of empowerment. You can like have an understanding that no, maybe this cop isn't like singling you out and you're not like a, you know, it's just like maybe someone who has had 40 hours of mental health training trying to do their job. Right. And that's the goal of this episode right here. And in my uh, perspective I don't want people also to be thinking like, what's the point? And be splitting and saying, screw this. It's like, no, this is the reality that we're dealing with. There are so many people out here in these systems that are actually good people that took these jobs because they want to help people. And they are just as overwhelmed and frustrated with the systems as the people. What's your reaction to all of that, especially as someone who has experienced it yourself and obviously probably have lots of friends and have worked with lots of other people in the system too.
2: Depending on where you are, it is so unbelievably frustrating to have your hands tied because at the end of the day, you know, I'm a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Colorado. I'm allowed to place a hold. I'm allowed to say this person for their own safety can't leave in the state of Texas. I'm not in the state of Texas. It has to be a physician. And if you end up in the ER, it's your emergency room position. It may not be a psychiatrist. So I can advocate. I can sell it as hard as I can. I can make the, we call them collateral calls. I, I can call the family member. I can call the friends. I can safety plan. I can call the therapist at three in the morning. Like I, I, can, I can do everything. And at the end of the day, it's up to a physician whether to take my recommendation or not. And they have a much higher education than I do. And they have much, like they have more on the line. You were talking about covering your ass. They have more education than me. Um, Mm -hmm. They have a degree that is much more, or a degree and a license that is much more uh, valuable. And at the same time, they aren't usually psychiatrists. And so there's this tough push and pull where, um, There is so much going on with like rapport building behind the scenes where there were doctors that I could go to and I could be like, I know you're not going to believe me on this, but like, you know, I'm good at my job and I'm telling you, send this person home. And they would be like, You have to convince me, but I am open to hear it. And there were doctors where that conversation wasn't going to happen. And then in Texas, it goes to a judge and it's up to the judge. And depending on what county you're in, the judge may have a very different opinion of the severity of your mental health status. So there's all of these steps in line. And the person who is doing your assessment, depending on where you are, may have very little control over the ultimate outcome. But what I will tell you is that they are, they're going to be the best advocate for you.
0: Mm -hmm. The mental health person, you mean in in particular? Yeah. yeah. You know, I read a post and I'll I'll read this because it goes to, with exactly what you're saying. So I read a post where a mental health professional said the state demands documentation that ties our hands. And you mentioned ha- your hands being tied that ties our hands and being able to individualize care for what works best for a client or when certain quantitative or qualitative mile markers are required to be reached to a, to receive funding. That's what causes staff burnout. It's fighting against all these things while trying to provide quality care, despite the system's bullshit potholes that breaks us, that causes us to leave. The current mental health medical model is simply unhelpful for some people, full stop, and it's outright harmful and causes damage to some people, full stop that sounds like someone who is extremely frustrated and I'm sure that there are some people that may not agree with that because again, I like always like to be dialectical in my uh, Mm -hmm. um, descriptions here. I can understand why a lot of people would end up being harmed in this system because it's just so many different people with their own um, lives on the line, like in terms of their reputation and their licenses, that it's just like, I can imagine how so many people get lost in, in the system of that. And then there's people like you that are going like, I'm trusting my gut. Like, I know this person is okay, but people are like, no, I'm not willing to risk my reputation for your gut feeling. And that must be so frustrating.
2: It really, it really is. And what I would always tell, I haven't worked in the ER um, in about a year. Um, What I would always tell people is you know, I'm I'm going to if I was thinking that they might be able to go home safely, I would say I'm going to go out there and I'm going to advocate for you with the doctor. But you need to understand that you might not go home. And if you don't go home today, if you need to be admitted to the hospital, at least I can tell you what to expect. Yeah, And I can prep you at least you can ask your questions to me you can yell at me, you can emote at me, right? You can have that moment to process through it rather than you finding out that you're not going home because they come to take you to the other unit. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be, again, it can be a really traumatizing experience. Um, But to the people who I knew were, were gonna be admitted and I knew they didn't want to, it is a really heartbreaking experience and I'm not comparing my suffering to theirs in that moment. But having to do that multiple times a day, every day over time is really, really painful.
0: I can only imagine.
2: And what I would tell them in that moment is you have every right to be as angry at me as you would like. And I understand that I am now the face of this decision for you.
0: Um,
2: But you have to be alive to hate me. And when you get out of here in three to six days and you still hate me, that means I did
1: my job. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Code program.
0: The way you describe that, like I hope that everyone out there listening, like if, even for the people that have had that experience, maybe where it's like you have such a hatred for the people in the quote unquote system. It's like there are people like Catherine, and like we said, it's not like we're comparing those experiences, but regardless, that is an experience that those people are having every day where they're having to like deliver this this news to people and getting that emotional blowback. And regardless, like that wears on you after a while.
2: On the hopeful side of that, especially for people who have been hospitalized and who had a very traumatic experience, because there are people, we're not talking about them today. But there are people who go to the hospital because they know they need help and they're asking for help and they get the yeah. help they need. Yes. And and they safely discharge to an appropriate level of care. That absolutely happens. Um, and you know what? I read a lot of those <laughs>
0: posts too. I read yeah. a lot of those posts as well.
2: Yeah. But what we know is that um, when you follow up with people 15 years after a psych hospitalization, 90% of them are still alive. And that doesn't take into account the cause of death for the other 10%. So 15 years is a long time. People also get sick. Um, People have accidents. We know this, There, there is so much research that when you interrupt a suicide attempt or when somebody attempts suicide, thinking that they will die, but doesn't die, there is so much research to show that life goes on from that moment. And as horrible as the experience of hospitalization may be you are alive to remember how bad it was yes. and every every day after that hospitalization is a new day that you may not have had and i'm not saying that in everybody's situation it was always the right call but there is so much hope in being hospitalized Because being hospitalized, I used to say this when people would tell me your job is so depressing. I said, no, by the time I talk to them, they're going to live.
0: We live in a society where the expectation is to be happy all the time. And if you're not happy all the time and you have like one, and we live in a society too where it's like we moralize feelings as being good or bad feelings as well. And so when you are raised to believe you should be happy all the time and that sadness and existential thoughts of like the heaviness of kind of the concept of death and like how hard life can be when you're socialized to believe that if you feel those feelings that something is quote unquote wrong yeah. it's completely understandable why i think people would become spiral even further once they start to right if if for example if i were raised um with the understanding that everyone kind of has these existential feelings. I think everyone at some point has like had such a bad emotional reaction to something that they're just like, God, I just want to go to sleep and not wake up in order to know what happiness is. We also have to understand what, what sadness is, right? We have to experience the, I'm not even going to call it the bad. We have to experience the full spectrum of human emotion to even under comprehend and understand what joy and mindfulness and peacefulness is, we also have to experience what the opposite of that is. And if you are listening to this and you've overcome suicidal ideation, I think you can relate to that, right? Where it's like, for me, I can imagine that day that I was having those thoughts. Now, when I look back, I wish that my future self could go back to my past self and say, Molly, you are going to look back on this in three years from now and you're going to have a podcast with almost hundred thousand downloads in six months. Right. And like, you're going to be feeling better than you ever have. And you're going to still have low days, but, and and you're going to be with someone that you really love. Like right in that space, I literally thought I would be forever alone. I wasn't leaving my house. I was like very like agoraphobic. Like it was the worst time in my life. And now I look back on that and I am in such a better place. And so Mm. it's like, it's pretty normal to have these thoughts and feelings.
2: The first thing that came up for me when you were talking was tall trees have deep roots, Mm. right? Mm. You can't, trees would just fall over if they didn't have deep roots. We need them. Um, I'm not saying that everybody needs to feel suicidal, but having that Feeling doesn't mean that you're incapable of having positive feelings, right? It just means that your spectrum of human emotion is a little wider maybe than others, but also like you point out, everybody's had a day where they woke up and they were like, I wish I wouldn't have woken up. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every
2: person that I've ever spoken to personal life or professional life, they've had a day where they woke up and they were like, really God, really? Yep. Fine. Fine, I'll do it, but I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I'm not saying that to laugh. I'm saying it because what people don't realize is that's a suicidal thought. They it do. doesn't mean you're going to do anything about it, but that, that is a thought exactly. of suicide because because you thought about what would it have been like to not wake up, and suicidal thoughts are on this huge spectrum, and it's not something really that, you know, like that assessment piece that Columbia assessment. Like I said, too many people. Too many people, quote unquote, um, they're going to get flagged by that because everybody has had a really hard day. Um, Mm. Lots of people, especially with COVID, and I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat in the capitalist nightmare that we live in. um, (laughs) Tinfoil hat off. Um, (laughs) Not just the mental health system, but the whole system that we live in, the whole world, the whole culture that we live in is not designed for mental wellness. So when you wake up and you're mad that you woke up and you wish you wouldn't have, that is your body just telling you that something is wrong, that you're not living a life that is in line with your dream for yourself, your values for yourself. I want to point out too, that there are, there are a lot of hopefully temporary Mm -hmm. times in life where you can't go live your most absolute truth, right? I, I understand sometimes you have to go to that horrible soul crushing job because you have to feed your kids, you know? And, but what happens then is when, when we have this, I wish I wouldn't have woken up because I can't go to the soul crushing job, but I know I have to, because I have my kids, right. Learning to actually tolerate that feeling, just kind of hanging out with you for a while
0: Mm.
2: and seeing it for what it is as Yeah right now i'm not able to live the way that i want to live and i hate that but also that doesn't mean i have to take any action to make that feeling go away mm-hmm. if if i if i can't go live the way i want to live i don't have to act in the opposite direction to make the feeling stop by ending my life i just have to acknowledge that there's another way to live and i haven't figured it out yet yes. and just like how just like how the therapist who's doing your assessment can't tell the future. You can't tell the future. Like you just said, if you could go back three mm-hmm. years and share that message of hope, if I could go back 10 years, and, and I actually talk about this with my clients all the time. like I so wish I had a time machine because I have so much compassion for how much misery and pain I experienced as a child, as an adolescent, well into my 20s, because I continued to make some choices that didn't necessarily get me out of some situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I couldn't see the future. Yep. And, you know, like living in the future now, I'm so full of hope. And when, when I talk to people who are in that dark place, I know it's patronizing, but it's temporary. And you don't yes. know what the world has for you.
0: That's such a beautiful message of hope. And I really hope it reaches people, you know, because I know that also it's really hard when you're feeling those feelings. And if you're a parent that has a child that struggled with these things, like, and you've said this kind of stuff and people are like, it's so hard to hear this kind of stuff when you're in that, in that place, you know? Yeah. Um, but even if you don't want to hear it, it's just, it's true. Like we can't know the future and it's, I know it's, it's hard to like, our brains are really good at tricking us into believing that like the worst is going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's, especially when we have BPD with splitting, you know, it's like, we think these things, like it will always be this way. It will never change it. It's all bad. Right. And yeah. The objective reality is that that's, that's actually not true. Like change is always possible. No feeling that I've ever had has been permanent in my life. No feeling that anyone has ever had in the world has been permanent. And that's a fact, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I had um, during a period in my life when I was going through some, some tougher stuff, I Mm -hmm. did think about suicide quite a bit. Mm -hmm. and I'm going to share kind of what I did and I'm going to share it in a lighthearted way. And I also know that it may not work for everybody, but I would go spend $2 on a mega millions ticket because you can't kill yourself. If you might have a hundred million dollars on Thursday, right? Like how ridiculous would it be? (laughs) Yeah. And that was really what I would tell myself is, you know, how, how ridiculous would it be if I, if I killed myself and then my ticket won, so I have to stay alive because I have to see if this ticket wins. And then that feeling absolutely went past because those feelings their intensity comes and goes yeah
0: and then it would go you came up with that idea to and a part of you like this self- perseverance like this hopeful part of you was more powerful than yeah. the part that didn't want to live and every single person that's listening to this, I don't care who you are. Like the part of you that wants to live is stronger. Always. Oh, if
2: you're listening to this podcast, sure. you want to live. This absolutely. is absolutely learning about, especially if you're at this point in the
0: podcast. Like, yeah, yes.
2: Learning about BPD, there is that part of you that is saying like, I need to understand myself better because yes. I believe that if I can, yep. things will get better. Or if you're a loved one, You're learning how to understand your loved one because you know, they're not hopeless, no matter what stigmatizing information is out there.
0: I read this post and this girl said, I tried seeking help this week. I got rejected by a psychiatrist because someone with BPD is quote high risk. According to her, she doesn't want the responsibility. Despite me telling her that I'm not suicidal, nor have I self-harmed in years. My first attempt at getting help and I get rejected. This is from a woman who, on her website, says she takes self referrals, which is what I wanted, and specializes in BPD. Yeah. What's your reaction to that? Have you heard of that happening um, quite a bit for people right. that you've worked with?
2: Yeah, um, there are there are a lot of therapists out there who don't treat BPD, and. The way that they turn people away may not be their wording is usually poor. Um, what I do want to point out, though, is that somebody who's going to turn you away because they think, quote unquote, all people with BPD are high risk. You don't want that person treating you anyway.
0: <laughs> I was just right? about <laughs> to say that. I was like, wow, bullet dodged. Like, Right? Like, yes. I am
2: not... I am absolutely not your girl if you have generalized anxiety that is not for me That is not my skill set. Um, if I'm sitting with somebody who just purely has anxiety and nothing else I will become anxious and you know is that something that I could work on as a clinician sure absolutely and I also do not advertise myself as working with anxiety because that isn't my skill set. Mm-hmm. I would rather somebody with anxiety go find a therapist who's really good at working with anxiety because they're out there, right? Yes. If somebody turns you away because they're afraid of working with somebody with BPD, they weren't going to give you good therapy. Yes. So I understand that it, I mean, I I get it. It ignites that fear of rejection. Absolutely. And it can send people into a spiral and I I don't want to minimize the pain of reaching out for the first time and having somebody tell you no, but also thank goodness.
0: Yes. I like to think of it like a job interview, right? Like it's like, if you get to the final stages of a job interview and they turn you down and it's like, when I was interviewing for jobs a few years ago, after like my really low mental health point, I get rejected, 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 and I'd get Mm -hmm. so disappointed. But then it's exactly that. Like you don't want to work somewhere where they don't want you, right? And it's like, you don't want to, especially you don't want to be putting your mental health care in the hands of someone who thinks that you're incurable or high risk and is going to like treat you like you're um, someone who can't get better. I've read so many posts from mental health therapists that say that they no longer accept insurance. I also read that insurance companies operate on a medical model. So that means that they require a diagnosis to establish that you have a medical necessity to seek services in order to pay providers, which means that in order for therapists to get paid, they have to assign a diagnosis to a client where there might not actually even be a diagnosis that fits in with what the client is is going through. Did you run into this frustration in your own practice?
2: I am one of those therapists that no longer takes insurance. What I will say is that from the beginning of my private practice, I knew who my people were. Um, I never really advertised myself as a generalist. I was very clear that I wanted to work with BPD, complex trauma and addiction. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do. So most of the people who end up working with me have kind of self-selected. So most of the people that I worked with very clearly fit one of those three diagnoses. Complex trauma is not in the DSM, which is
0: a whole nother topic.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) For those of you listening, I just like waved off
0: into space and my mind went blank for a minute. Um, I think it will be eventually, but yeah, we have a long way to go. Sure. It's
2: not, it's not in the one that they're releasing next month, unfortunately. So yeah. Right. They also didn't update the criteria for BPD in the new one, Um, but that's neither here nor there. Most of the clients that I worked with very clearly met criteria for a diagnosis. And so That wasn't necessarily where I struggled. Where I struggled was that insurance companies have the right to audit your chart to decide whether or not they really want to pay for services. Mm -hmm. And in the best case scenario, they will do an audit and say, hey, we're not going to pay for any future services after this date. In the worst case scenario, they do an audit and they say, we're not going to pay you for the past, however many months of therapy that, that have already been completed. Even if they paid you, they'll actually take it back.
1: Wow. Um,
2: And because I work with folks with BPD, I see people pretty much every week with some exceptions. Some people come more, some people come less, but I see people every week because having that structure, that Tuesday at 8am is when I see my therapist and I know that no matter what happens this weekend, I have somebody to talk to about it. So I don't have to spiral. I just have to write it down and bring it to session. That on its own is so powerful for people having that just schedule. And the evidence that therapy is working for people with BPD is that they don't need higher levels of care. Right. Or they experience symptom remission, of course. But if if they're needing ongoing treatment, the evidence that the ongoing treatment is working is that nothing really bad is happening. But therapy is helping them maintain that. And without that weekly therapy, they would not be able to maintain that. And again, there's like absolutely after a certain period of time, you may experience remission. You don't need weekly therapy for the rest of your life. But there may be a pretty hefty chunk of time when you do, and what was happening to me was insurance companies were calling me and they've said, "Well, okay, you met with this person thirty times in eight months. Why aren't they better yet? Why do they still need you?" And the way to why haven't you fixed
0: a lifetime of why complex you trauma a lifetime in eight months? Of
2: complex trauma in eight months. Yeah,
0: Catherine. Wow. Uh,
2: can you do that in an hour or once a month instead? Um, and the only way for the therapist to respond to that is to explain why continued treatment is necessary. So you actually go into a peer review where you are telling somebody who has never met your client, what is going on with your client with minimum necessary disclosure. So I'm not sharing, you know, every single thing I know about them, but I'm sharing what they're still working on in therapy and the goals that they haven't met yet and wow. that is the only way to verify payment and i understand that insurance makes therapy accessible to people i i wanted to use insurance i took insurance when i started but for me what was most ethically appropriate after going through a couple of those audits which were always approved yeah right but i just really didn't the process made me feel yucky Mm. Um, so for me, what was most ethically appropriate was to get off the insurance panels and just have the majority of my client base be on a sliding scale.
0: I read another thing that some therapists shared, and she says, obviously this is pretty extreme, but she says that she felt like she was almost committing insurance fraud because she felt like she was having to kind of bend the truth and and kind of give certain diagnoses that she didn't feel that would fit exactly right in order to get paid for her sessions. And she felt like the system was kind of like forcing this on her and she was like, you know, a lot of the people that I interact with other providers are willing to walk this fine line and kind of like take that risk. But she was like, it just didn't align with my values. And this is no, by no means like any, like shaming any therapist out there that like takes insurance, but I can understand and empathize with like how that would make me feel kind of like icky, you know?
2: Absolutely. And something that I talk about with my clients now is A mental health diagnosis is a cultural construct. Yes. It is not an objective truth about who you are. Like I'm five foot three. That's an objective truth about me. Yes. Maybe later in my life, I'll be five foot two or five foot one, but you can measure it. And Mm -hmm. and it's a real thing. And it really does define me. And I really can't reach the top shelf in the kitchen, right? And I never (laughs) will without a stool. But a mental health diagnosis is not like that. If it was, they wouldn't refine and update them every 10 years. Um, A mental health diagnosis, the way we define a symptom is we take a feeling and we draw a line between can you have that feeling and still do everything that that your culture, that your role in society expects of you, or is the feeling getting in the way of that? And once the feeling gets in the way of that, it's a symptom.
0: Mm. and a diagnosis. a really good way of looking at it.
2: Yeah. So like everybody's anxious about something sometimes, but if you're not able to perform at school, now it's a
0: symptom instead of a feeling. Yes. And the last thing I'll share is like another mental health professional that I was reading was stated, and she said the tides are changing in some circles. And she went on to say that trauma intensive programs where BPD is seen as an attachment disorder and a response to trauma is something that's like she thinks changing the the game of mental health. And she said she advised people on the thread to look for trauma therapists. We are out there and we're excited to work with you. And do you agree with her that the tide is changing due to more awareness around kind of like trauma informed approaches?
2: I do. Um, the one note that I want to make is that not everybody with BPD has a trauma history. And I know that that can be kind of a, a point of contention there. There is absolutely a shift on a macro level where the field is no longer looking at BPD as untreatable. Yes. And unfortunately it's still lingering. I have a friend of mine who is in graduate school right now to become a counselor. Mm-hmm. And she had a professor who advised them don't take people with BPD because they filed the most malpractice complaints. Oh boy. Um, in so 2022, this is there's so. still people. There's still people out there who <sighs> are spreading that stigma,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but there's plenty of people out there like me who are saying that's actually not true, and we have a ton of research. And DBT doesn't work for everybody, but DBT has been out for more than thirty years, and we know it works. Yes, um, and we know there's other kinds of therapy that work too. And we know that even if you don't get therapy, if you are just somewhat interested in your own recovery, you are. likely to age out of it after a certain point in time, does that mean you'll be cured? Does that mean you'll never have a symptom again? No, but what's a symptom? It's a feeling that interferes with your ability to do the things you want in life. You will be able to get a handle on those feelings so that they stay on the feeling side of the line. The message that I really want to leave people with is, yes, I spent a really long time talking about a broken system and burnout and all of that. And I, I understand that that can feel really demoralizing, but the overall message that I do want to impart is that there is no shame at all with having suicidal thoughts. There is no shame at all to needing to ask for help. And there's no shame at all with having to have somebody else protect your safety for a short period of time. And if you have done that and you had a bad experience, please know that your experience does matter. And I'm also really happy that you're still here.
0: As we said in the beginning of the episode two, the objective reality is that mental health systems around the entire world are really overwhelmed, right? Like it's, it's not just the United States and this is by no means saying if you go into an emergency room or if you go ask for help that you're going to have a traumatizing experience at all. It's like it's actually likely that you encounter a lot of people that actually really want what's best for you and want to help protect you. But Absolutely. the most important part is to know that every single person that you encounter in throughout the system is an individual person who is trying to do their job that encounters a lot of stress in their day-to-day job too and if you can if this episode can do anything i hope that it can as i said before provide a window into what everybody in the different kind of like i mean we can't talk about every single person but a window into what the individuals that make up the quote unquote system cuz we talk a lot about the system fuck the system the system sucks but The system is made up of human beings that are trying to do their job that go home every day, like you did, after a day of maybe having to involuntarily commit five or six people in a row, and maybe not, and and maybe have tried your best to advocate to send some of them home and you couldn't. And like, it's like sometimes I imagine people like you go home and cry themselves to sleep because they did their very best. And so it's like, if we can do anything, we can. All understand that we are all just human beings, really, really trying a lot of times our best. There's no way to wrap this conversation up in a perfect bow, but what, but what there is is that I guarantee, if you've listened to this far, is that you know a lot more than you did when you first started, and that was the goal, is for us to empower you with more information.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there is, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time on it today, but there are ways using your county mental health system to reach out so that you can have a higher likelihood of getting into some kind of wraparound care, talking with your therapist in advance, literally bring this podcast up, like yeah. go to your therapist and say, I listen to this podcast and I, you know, I, I sometimes have these feelings and I want to talk to you about how you would handle them because mm-hmm. When I have when I have clients in my private practice, if I have somebody who I know has a history of suicidal thoughts, great, I do a risk assessment, I do a safety plan, and then every time it comes up, we talk about the safety plan, we see if the safety plan is going to be good enough or not, right? It's not a big deal. We talk about it in the first session, we get it out in the open. Now I know what your baseline is. Now now this is something that we can actually work on. Not every therapist worked in the ER for five years, and that's okay. But you want to ask them, how would you handle it? How would you know, like, what is your bar for sending me to a higher level of care? Um, I want to have a safety plan in place because I want to show you how important this is to me so that if I do feel this way in the future, we have something to refer back to. Um, Because if you have the conversation in that way, you are advocating for
0: yourself in a really, really powerful way. You talked about how people can reach out to their county.
2: If you are in the US, you should be able to Google either the name of your county or the name of your city. If you live in a big city, mental health crisis line. Okay. That crisis line is probably run by your local mental health agency. That is the number that you want to call when you need to talk to somebody, when you're thinking about hurting yourself. If uh-huh. you need medical attention because action has already happened, you need to
0: call 911. And can family Um, members use that line too, Catherine? Yes. Okay. Family
2: members can use that line as well. And so it's the name of your city or county, depending on how big of an area you live in. Mental Mm -hmm. health crisis sign. Your family can call in. Um, They can call in on your behalf. They can say, hey, my daughter's here. Hey, my wife is here. Hey, my husband's Mm -hmm. here. Um, And he's having thoughts of suicide. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they can even dispatch somebody to your house. I don't know what the status of that is with COVID, Um, but they're going to have a lot more comprehensive resources for you. Once you call 911, it goes to police, fire, dispatch. Um, So you do, you get to be in the driver's seat of your own care. If you call that mental health crisis line, as long as no action has taken, if you've taken an action and you need medical help, please go to the ER as fast as you can. Um, Mm -hmm. But beyond that, you can talk on the phone. Potentially they may be able to send somebody out. They may be able to video chat with you. Um, There could be a lot of different ways that your local agency can support you in ways that uh, the bigger picture systems can't. And I want to encourage people to have safety plans and crisis plans I want to be respectful of your time too, but I I do want to touch base on that a little bit. So, a safety plan is if I want to kill myself, Mm -hmm. what am I going to do to stop feeling that way or to keep myself safe? And you can Google, there is like a standard form where you list your triggers, you list your individual coping skills. So, Mm -hmm. those are things that you can do by yourself 24 hours a day to help de escalate. You'll list The phone numbers and names of people that you can call for distraction, maybe not people that you're going to call and tell every detail of, but get out of your head, like go go to their house and watch a movie kind of thing. And then also people you can call in crisis, your local mental health crisis line, your nearest psychiatric hospital, you know, those sorts of information. When you have that safety plan, you also want to give it to the people in your life who are supportive. So you can just reach out to them and say, I don't think I'm safe. And they can say, great. Have you already tried painting and watching Parks and Rec? And (laughs) do you need me to come over? Or do you need me to call the, you know, Dallas County mental health crisis line? Like where are we at on the plan? Having a safety plan, sharing it with your loved ones before the crisis um, is so important. And a crisis plan is more of how am I going to self-soothe? So you get a little kit together and it's, you know, you have an ice pack or a heating pad. And if you like to draw, have pencils or markers there so that you can draw. You can just open the box and there it is. Noise-canceling headphones, um, silly putty, uh, lotion, scented lotions, chapstick, anything like that that is going to help to, Draw your mind away for a moment from the crisis. You literally want to put it in one place, like a box, so that when you do feel a crisis, you don't have to think too hard. You just go to that box, open up the box, pull something out. Okay,
0: lotion. I'm going to put lotion on and smell it. And those kinds of things just get your senses back online. Is that the, that the point? Like, it's just, mm-hmm. it's like when they say you're feeling str- like to get back in your body, it's like name one thing that you can taste, one thing you can smell, one thing you can hear that kind of thing like, to like bring you absolutely. back into the present moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those of you who are familiar with DBT tip skills, you know, put the ice pack on your face, the, all those kinds of things um, that it's self-soothe essentially. You put it all in the Christ kit, maybe a journal anything that you think is going to help you and look up DBT distress tolerance skills in advance Mm -hmm. so that if this is something that you know, that you deal with, you know, what's going to be a good fit for you. Um, Things like Sudoku or Wordle, Mm -hmm. your brain can't do two complicated things at the same time. So if you're trying to do the Wordle puzzle, you can't also be, taking action to end your life. like, <laughs> it's like so you, you have to, you have to put pause on those thoughts to do the wordle. And in that time, is it going to bring you any clarity? Are you going to be able to then do one more thing
0: as you wait for that feeling to pass? I think that suggestion is so great for individuals with BPD and friends and family, right? Because a lot of times it's like, what can I do? It's like, that's something objectively you can do. You can put together your crisis kit, right? You can like put together your plan. And even just that it's something that you can take action on and and really do as a method of empowering yourself and knowing Mm -hmm. that you are doing something to protect yourself. That's really, really powerful.
2: Planning it in advance is going to be the most important thing you can do. Um, Absolutely. The most important thing. So you know, I shared the lotto thing. If if you know if something came to your mind when I said that, and you're like, "Oh, what I need to do is like look at Petfinder mm-hmm. because if I could get a dog tomorrow, <laughs> like, then mm-hmm. I have a reason to live for tomorrow, right?" Yeah. The planning in advance is the most important part. Everybody is different. What's what works for everybody is going to be different, but planning in advance so that when you are in crisis and your brain is not able to think clearly, you just go to the box or you just go to that safety plan um, Mm -hmm. and then everything is out there for you. That is really the best way that you can support yourself and bringing in your loved ones. If you have supported loved ones so that they can also uh,
0: do that with you. That's extremely helpful. Well, I hope that anyone who needs it starts working on their, their plan today, like putting together your crisis kit and also having that information of Googling your the name of your county and mental health crisis line, is that correct,
2: mm-hmm. right? Yeah, city or county. So if you're in like okay. LA or New York, it's mm-hmm. going to be your city.
0: Remember that if you do end up in a situation where you are, quote unquote, in the system, like now you have a better understanding of what each and every person you encounter along the way what their job is and what they're up against also in their own respective jobs. And so hopefully that will allow you and, or your friend or your family, whoever you share this episode with to be better equipped, to be less likely to have a traumatizing experience if that mm-hmm. happens. Right. Because if this episode can help one person go through the system and let, have feel less traumatized, even though we know that that's nobody's intent in any of the different roles that they may encounter, then this episode will have been worth it for me. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So what's next for Catherine? I ask. you know, like, what are you working on? How can people find you? Um, yeah. I want to give you that opportunity to do a little shameless self-promotion because that's what we like to end the episode with.
2: All right. Um, if you are on Instagram, you can find me at Catherine LCSW. That's Catherine with a C and then LCSW stands for licensed clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. If you are on TikTok, it's BPD education, which is way easier, Uh, (laughs) but I already, the, the Instagram existed before I learned about branding. So, um, what can you do? Yeah. So you can find me there. Um, I practice in Texas, Colorado, and Florida via telehealth. So if you're interested to reach out as a client, when you go on
0: Instagram or TikTok, there's a a link in the bio. And I will link to all of Catherine's information, her Instagram there and all of that good stuff in the show notes. So if I will also, um, do some helpful links, like I'll remind you about what to Google. Um, I'll also maybe do a couple of links to like how to put together a crisis kit. I'll find some good information there or I you was can share gonna, it. Yeah. Me. I was going
2: to say, I can send that to you. So when you, when you post the episode, you have it
0: right there. That will be super helpful. So either way, when you hear this, there's going to be lots of goodies in the show notes. So make sure that you take a look at that. And thank you, Catherine, seriously, yeah. so much for having this difficult conversation. It's not an easy topic, but I also think it is like so, so important to discuss and empower people with this information. So I just can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really
0: appreciate it. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening, because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine, and that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode, so to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice, and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review, and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode, so don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return.